Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Hey, everybody. We've got a great one today. Uh, you know, for a change. And that's because Susan Rice uh, is with us, former National Security Advisor to President Obama, and before that, his ambassador to the United Nations. Also, uh, she served as uh, Assistant Secretary of State covering Africa during the Clinton administration, uh, basically one of the most experienced, knowledgeable, and respected members of our nation's foreign policy brain trust, and she's written a memoir, Tough Love, my story of the things worth fighting for. And apparently, one of the things worth fighting for is the right of the National Security Advisor to commandeer the top floor <laughs> of a Peruvian nightclub and dance like a fiend through the night to R&B and hip-hop with the rest of the president's traveling staff, all while drinking Pisco Sours. <laughs> Indeed. One of the things worth fighting for. That was on page 457. I read the damn book. I read the whole book. God bless you, Al. Thank you. And I really enjoyed it. Thank you. You really get the sense of how foreign policy, you know, has to be made in real time. Yeah. Well, at least how it used to be made in real time. I think Trump makes it even in realer time. He just talks (laughs) to Erdogan and goes, oh, okay. I mean, <laughs> I think he does. He does his. Well, a maybe lot not even. He just tweets it. Well, with with Erdogan, I think it was a phone call. Wasn't it, it? It, well, it appears to have been the precipitating factor. But a lot of things, he seems to just wake up and say, "Boom." Well, at least we all get to see it. Uh, <laughs> but but doing this in real time, sometimes it doesn't work out perfectly. Absolutely, and uh, that can mean some really tragic outcomes. And you discuss Black Hawk Down, you discuss Rwanda, uh, Libya, Syria, um, uh, and and Iraq. Sometimes you don't get it exactly right. And I just want to ask you first about, and you write about this, uh, how you handle emotionally when the consequences of a well-thought-out or as well-thought-out as you can decision turns out badly and you talk about a lot of tragic stuff you talk about sudan and south sudan and i know the one time i had to do and you write about this too was uh when assad used gas 
And seriously, I had a vote on that, and that was the worst time for me. My feeling was he should have done it right away, and I know you say there are U.N. inspectors, but uh, was there any targets you could have hit right away where there weren't U.N. inspectors? Well... That were relevant targets. We, we, we needed to get the U.N. personnel out. Uh, but that was only going to take 24 to 48 hours. So that wasn't actually the huge impediment. Uh, it, what happened in the interim, of course, is that in Britain, David Cameron took the question to his parliament right. and mm-hmm. lost yep. the effort to, to have British participation in our efforts uh, because authorized. They felt, they felt burned on a rock. Well, members of parliament apparently did. And yeah. Ca- Cameron miscalculated the degree of support he would have. And President Obama made the decision that it would be wise to have the U.S. Congress authorize the action. The Congress is supposed to do that, but we haven't, or it hasn't, uh, for a long time. <laughs> well, you, you know, <laughs> Al, I mean, this is, there's a extraordinary hypocrisy in Congress, where on oh, the one God, hand, yeah. they want to be involved in everything yeah and they want responsibility for nothing yeah in the constitution it's <laughs> our rights it's okay we have to decide this yeah oh no oh no oh no <laughs> i can't decide that right because you know my constituents don't want us to bomb syria because we're at war and that's how uh people in minnesota talk oh no no they don't uh they go oh gosh <laughs> no, I don't want that. I, I I actually I was actually at the state fair. And this is a tradition. The state fair ends on Labor Day, and we had just kind of I think the news had filtered to everyone the night before or something. And uh, the, that last day, the Minnesota Public Radio station has a big theater there. Or stage, and and you do an interview in front of all these people at the fair, and the interviewer Gary Eichten asked me about what should we do, and I said we got to bomb them because uh, a couple things: uh, the president drew a red line, you can't draw a red line without acting on that, and secondly, this is a a violation of a norm that is really held. Since World War One, and if if it doesn't go punished, it makes our troops more vulnerable. So, and boy, did they hate it! I don't, I don't doubt it. I mean, as I write in Tough Love, this is one of the the, the harder moments that we faced uh, with respect to to Syria policy. There were a number, but I actually was the only senior person sitting around that table in the Situation Room who argued to the president that he should not seek congressional authorization for because you thought the they wouldn't he wouldn't get it. Yeah, no, I wasn't making exactly. No, that's exactly right. I wasn't yeah. making a substantive argument because mm-hmm. I understood the logic of his position. You know, this could end up being something more involved and be wise to have the backing of the American people as expressed through Congress, particularly after he saw what had happened to David Cameron. So he wanted to be on terra firma. Uh, And my judgment was, and, you know, maybe this was because I'd (laughs) seen a little bit of the the cravenness of the Republicans in Congress up close and personal. I concluded that the Republicans in Congress would not give Obama anything he asked for, regardless of whether they thought it was the right thing. 
And then I also assessed that the Democrats in Congress would not want to be caught dead taking a vote in favor of another military action in the Middle East. But that wasn't my job. I was a national security advisor. I was supposed to make policy, not offer a political judgment. And there were four former senators sitting around that table, the president, the vice president, the secretary of state and the secretary of defense. But you and can make your argument. I did make my argument. Did. I did. But, and then uh, but you, I wasn't. Then you sign off. You say, yes, sir, right? <laughs> well, you say, yes, sir, or, or see ya. And I, in this case, said, yes, sir. Yeah. And I don't regret it. That wasn't the hardest. And we, he kind of had a bank shot getting the agreement. Well, better. No, it's a better outcome. Yes, I think, except for this. I mean, the outcome was we got an agreement for him to get rid of all his. Chemical chemical weapons and the precursors. Right. Okay. I don't know if he did. We don't know if he did. We don't know if there was stuff. Because he used it later. Now he could have reconstituted it, as you point out right. in the book. So we don't. We don't know if we got it all. We, we, we believe we, to this day, I think, that we got the bulk of it. 1,300 metric tons out, removed and destroyed. Let's assume we didn't get it all. Let's assume that rather than it being reconstituted, which is one possible explanation, when it was used again in 2017. Sorry, 2017 was the the next time we had confidence that he'd use sarin gas, which is the the the, the one we were we, we had removed, right. as opposed to chlorine, which is a longer story. Trump takes the strike list, the target list that Obama had developed off the shelf mm-hmm. and executes one night a bombing. Yep. And did it again, actually, in 2018 when there was some evidence of uh, chemical use. And that was it. We all felt good for 24 hours. Oh, we enforced a red line. But nothing changed. Not one single metric well, ton of gas has been removed from Syria. And it's all still there. Whatever was there is still there. And more... Probably. Uh, recently, something changed in Syria, which was uh, selling out the Kurds. Yeah. And I had Peter Galbraith uh, oh. on. Uh, he's now he's been very close to the Kurds for 30 years. Right. They it, were our it's allies. It's a strategic catastrophe across the board. Undercuts our relationship with the Kurds. Threw them under the bus, but sent the word to, to all of our allies and partners around the world that, you know, we have a president of the United States who can wake up on the wrong side of the bed or have a, a phone call with his buddy and leave you in the lurch. So the next time we need partners to fight terrorists in their own territory rather than having u.s forces and have to go exactly and do what it. happened they did they did our fight they, they took did. our fight it's basically telling everyone in the world that if you take up our fight for us uh, eleven thousand of, of men and women men and women die doing it for you getting rid of isis in syria You'll sell them out. And that is just a disaster. And we handed our bases literally to the Russians who are flying flags over them as we speak. Yep. We gave Assad. our meals. They gave Assad and Iran, you know, an early Christmas present. And, you know, and Erdogan has been up in there committing war crimes. Yep. But other than that, it was a good decision. No, that's the most disgraceful thing he's done. And that's. Uh, you a know, very high bar. It is a high bar, but I, I'm not sure I'm prepared. As bad as that was, I'd have to really think about that before I was prepared to pronounce it the most disgraceful. Yeah, but at least you have to think about it. You haven't, right, you haven't gone, no! 
Yeah, I have to think about this, it. Right? I, I can think okay. of a few other things. Yeah, I want to talk some... to you about one part of the book okay. <laughs> that I have a criticism of. Okay. Okay, this is my objection. Yes. It's a little unfair to you because I'm a, um, I was a comedian for a long time. And, I remember. Okay, and this is this was my objection. You name check 10, 12, 15 people who you say were really funny or funny <laughs> and made you laugh. <clears throat> you don't give a fucking funny example. You have to. If you oh, say someone's okay. funny in a book, you got to say, for example... You know, fair enough. That is a fair criticism. Isn't that, I talk about George Bush, W. You say that W Michelle is the, one Obama. of the funniest guys you've ever met. And you, he and, and and you and Michelle Obama were on a long plane trip, and they were hilarious. You didn't say anything that was so fucking th- funny. I didn't give the joke. Never. There's like 15 people who are about funny. 15, but you're right. Yeah, that's 12. A, I, I accept that as a very legitimate cr- criticism. My God. My um, God. Now that okay, that's fair enough. That's okay, I, w- I want to get to you <laughs> and your book a little bit more, uh, which is I was talking about these awful things that happened. Rwanda, uh, the ultimate outcome in Libya was not good, and you say that these things really are re- regrets that you have. What I want to know, and you talk about this actually is uh, how do you deal with that emotionally? I write about these experiences because, you know, from each of them, hopefully I and others learn something uh, that's worth sharing from a policymaker's point of view. But I had very different vantage points on someone. So, for example, with Rwanda and Somalia, I was the junior staffer on the NSC, the director for UN Affairs and Peacekeeping. This was before I had regional responsibility for Africa. But it probably affected me emotionally How could it not? more than some of the ex- things I experienced when I was arguably a decision maker. I describe in the book, going back to Rwanda, not just as we all did, watching on television, the horror of those bodies floating down rivers, the rivers choked with bodies, <laughs> and the, you know, the, the horrific reality of almost a million people being killed by machete. Neighbors killing neighbors. Neighbors killing neighbors. But then six months after the genocide ended, I accompanied the national security advisor, Tony Lake, who was my boss, as part of a small interagency delegation to Rwanda, where we took a helicopter from the capital out to a rural area, and we landed the helicopter in the what appeared to be the middle of nowhere. And we were visiting a massacre site which was a church and a school and a schoolyard. And we got off the helicopter, and within about 10 yards of getting off the helicopter, the ground was literally thick with bodies, decomposing This is six bodies. months. Six months later, nothing. They, they couldn't have begun at that stage to remove all the dead. And I, with all these others, had to literally pick our way, gingerly trying to step through this churchyard without stepping on corpses. And I couldn't speak literally for hours after that. It was the most sobering, uh, distressing, 
experience I think I've had to this day in terms of just the magnitude I, of that. I, I, and so I don't how do know. you deal with that? Yep. You Well, first of all, <clears throat> you have to you have to confront it. You can't deny it. But you also can't allow it to debilitate you when you have a critical job to do. Now, again, at that level, at that stage, I wasn't the decision maker. But later, later let's take Syria. We've talked about Syria. You know, I did not have the same on the ground experience of, you know, visiting victims in Syria. I did visit Libya after uh, Gaddafi's removal and saw, you know, both... (laughs) The fallout of the war, right? The just incredible, and that was a miscalculation uh, in terms of what is going to happen. What's the aftermath of that going to be? Yeah, I don't. I, as I write in the book, in my judgment, we did. It was the right decision to intervene to save lives and protect civilians because we were able to do it at relatively little risk and cost, and we did save tens of thousands of lives. We but did not succeed really in the uh, aftermath. Foresee the aftermath. We didn't. We we didn't fully foresee it, nor did we. Once we encountered it, it, engage effectively. But in Libya, I visited in that window within, you know, a few weeks or months after Gaddafi was removed and before everything had gone to hell in a handbasket, where I and the United States of America and President Obama and the French and the Brits were all being celebrated as the heroes Mm -hmm. who saved lives. I was mobbed. In the town square of Benghazi. Because he was had going babies. to slaughter Benghazi, yeah. basically. I had babies being thrust into my arms by parents saying, you know, they wanted me to hold their children as like a, an honor. That was before things, you know, devolved into relative chaos. So the emotions of all of these things, starving kids in Sudan or where, whatever you want to point to that I've seen in my life, um, you've got to allow yourself to feel it. But you can't allow yourself to be crippled by it or immobilized. And that's a really fine line. And I, I, you talk about that in here. You tie it in some regard to your parents. Yeah. And your dad, specifically. Well, There's actually, a- to my parents' divorce and the, the trauma I oh my God, experienced yeah. as a kid. Tough love, I guess, is, is, is in a way a reference to that. Well, it's a reference to, you know, being raised... By parents who love me fiercely, but not uncritically. They wouldn't tell me when I was screwing up. And that's how I've tried to raise my but kids. But also, I think you, you say you dealt with their divorce. You kind of became, between you and your brother, you're older, right? And and you were the parent you know, of that. And people take roles yeah. when this shit happens. And you kind of... My role was to be the baby firefighter. Try yeah. to put out the fires between my parents. Yeah. And um, I think that <laughs> has... Uh, helped you in your in your life and your uh, career and i think it's helped you be resilient in in the way you obviously uh need to be let, let me talk about benghazi the the loss of ambassador stevens and and the other three and you tell your mom mom i'm going to be on Every Sunday show. This is the Friday night before the Sunday. Yeah. Right. And your mom goes, oh, don't. She's like, oh, hell no. <laughs> She's like, well, you know, don't do it. You go on all the Sunday shows. What's It's called the full, the Monica Ginsburg. Lewinsky. Yeah, full Ginsburg is 
Ginsburg's lawyer went on all five, so he was the first one to do it. And you go on all five, and your mom said, don't do it, and she was smart. Uh, so you go on with what the intelligence community has given you, and you say that when you're on every show, but every once in a while, if you're on five shows, at some point, one of the interviewers is going to interrupt you, and you're not going to complete a thought about, oh, now understand, <laughs> this is what we know now, and it could be changed, it could change, but, you know, Bob Schieffer, whoever, stops you and you go somewhere else, and what the five tapes do is allow Fox News to completely fuck you over. It was in part that there was, you know, lots of tape to parse. But the real problem was the information that the intelligence community had, which I knew, by the way, to be accurately representing what they were reporting in classified channels, because Mm -hmm. I'm reading the classified intelligence briefs on a daily basis, turned out, as is often the case when you have a terrorist attack or some other kind of crisis, to be wrong in some respects. And as they got more information, as the investigation uh, unfolded, as you know, more sources came in, they modified about 10 days after I went on the shows for the first time. They subsequently modified it more well, times. They modified it back more to what you had said. Exactly. But th- they modified their their public understanding of what had happened. And as you know, and as listeners will recall, this was in the middle of President Obama's reelection campaign, September 2012, when he was running against Mitt Romney. Yeah. And the Republicans in Congress were determined to defeat Obama. And terrorism had become unexpectedly or counterterrorism had become unexpectedly a strength for Obama and the Democrats having killed Osama bin Laden and taken the fight to al-Qaeda. And here, the Republicans thought they had an opportunity and an opening to be tarring Obama with the brush of being a failure on terrorism because we lost four Americans in a terrorist attack. Mm -hmm. And... They came at him in many different ways, but one way was through me and accusing me of deliberately lying to the American people about the information we had because they were able to argue that I gave... In fairness to them, they said you're either lying or stupid. No, that was Lindsey Graham. (laughs) (laughs) I'm either incompetent or untrustworthy. Yeah, let me see if I got it right. Um, But most of them just called me a liar. Yeah. Uh, And... uh, you know, Peter King called for my resignation. The other one who did that was McCain. Yep. And uh, we could have a long conversation. You know what? We should do that because I've never, in the whole context of this book tour, never had the opportunity to talk about John McCain. Good, because a complicated guy, no doubt about it, and, and some incredibly admirable qualities, and then other times not. And and uh, I've experienced both sides of it when he left to uh, go back to Arizona for what I thought was the last time, I said to him, I'm going to send you some uh, good news, bad news notes. I'll send one a week or so. So there'd be 
the bad news, this is after Ron Johnson said that he had voted against the health care bill because of the brain. Oh, my God. T- yeah. So I said, I wrote him, uh, the bad <laughs> news is you have brain cancer. Uh, the good news is that Ron Johnson's ass cancer has moved to his mouth. <laughs> so that's so sweet of you. So you were trying to keep his spirits up with these notes? Of- he really liked the notes. I'm sure he did. I'm sure he did. <laughs> I did that's another great. one was, uh, this was a good news, bad news one, which was... Uh, uh, the good news is that your mom's 104 and is as sharp as a tack. The bad news is you have brain cancer. Oh, God. Oh, my God. And, you know, and then and then I didn't know he was going to make it. He came back and he said, this guy earned every cent he ever made at Saturday Night Live. Not here. <laughs> So he was funny. That was a funny thing he said. You see, if yeah. I wrote a book. Uh-huh. You put the, the <laughs> joke in there. I got that you. was what I, I do. I got you. I'm not going to make that mistake And again. Lindsay's funny, too. You want me to, I'll just tell you one thing about Lindsay. Uh, during the primaries, the early part of the primaries, I said, if I were a Republican, I'd vote for you. This is in the bathroom. We were side by side. And he said, <laughs> I said, if I, were, if I were a Republican, that's not the funny part. Oh, I, oh I, but it is. <laughs> I said to him, uh, if I were a Republican, I'd vote for you. And he said, that's my problem. Well, he's fixed that now. Yes, boy, in a big way. Wow, wow, wowie, wow, 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 as I said. But let's do a McCain because, yeah, I mean, he could yell at me, do that, and then be unbelievable. Yeah, no, I, I never had the opportunity to really get to know him. Uh, I, I mean, I've, I know many people like John Kerry who knew him well. Uh, I have friends who, you know, served on his staff um who knew him well and you know my experience with him really was Benghazi the 2008 campaign before that but I didn't actually know him then and then you know I would sit occasionally in meetings in the Oval Office between President Obama and McCain and sometimes Graham and when I was national security advisor as Obama actually invited him in on occasion to talk about national security issues mm-hmm. he barely acknowledged my presence but he wasn't you know he didn't so what did any... you say about so, him so, in the, my, so during the campaign in yeah. 2008 the general election campaign uh when i was actively working on the obama campaign and was a surrogate i would go on television and comment yeah. and debate and that sort of thing and over the summer i believe of 2008 mccain took a trip to iraq and it was a, a an effort to show how security in Iraq had improved. And he did a the tour. Surge, how the surge. Yeah, and how yeah. the surge, which he'd supported, had yielded better security. And so McCain walked around a Baghdad market, you know, with his staff and I'm sure security to demonstrate that things were better. Um, but he was that, wearing yeah. a flak jacket, which sort of was a mixed message, to say the least. And I made a comment when President Obama, then Senator Obama, was going to take a subsequent trip to Iraq. And I was previewing the trip to the press and what he was going to do. And I said something flip like, but he won't be strolling around, you know, a market in Baghdad with a flak jacket on, Mm. which was disrespectful. Actually, it wasn't just a flak jacket. He was wearing the bomb suit like an, in Hurt Locker. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I... 
Anyway, <laughs> I say in the book, look, I, I regret coming across as attacking McCain on an ad hominem basis sure. during the campaign. I don't mind disagreeing with his policies and calling him, you know, uh, you know, I think too quick to, to pull the trigger often, uh, too ready for a conflict in, in, in international relations. That hurt but, him. Well, but but that that's that a hurt policy. him in that first debate, that foreign policy debate. Was that the first debate? I can't he remember. Lo- boy, you went. Oh boy, we're going to go to war again. Well, and uh, with this guy. And- but I thought that. I mean, those were f- policy criticisms. But what I regret is the that which came off as ad hominem. Because look, whatever you want to say about the policies and his politics, he served this country. With great patriotism and commitment. Oh my God! There's no, no, no question about that. And just a guy with tremendous courage, and often the only one who'll stand up and put yeah. their thumb down on on the healthcare. Exactly. But, you know, uh, Harry Reid. We did a, uh, a, a bipartisan lunch. We do that once a year. Once a year. Yeah. That's it. That's it. <laughs> oh God. Oh yeah. They the, the Republicans like have three a week. Uh, yeah. Caucus lunches, yeah. but so, once a year we get together on a bipartisan basis. Yeah, and, and that was then. It's probably zero now, right? Probably. And Johnny Isaac said, "No, I think they do it." Harry, we're going to have a bipartisan lunch, and Harry persuades McCain, persuades John to tell about his five and a half years in the Hanoi Hilton, wow. which he had never done. Wow! So um, he does. And it's obviously harrowing and moving and all that. And it's pretty amazing. That's at lunchtime. So at about five in the afternoon, we have votes. And we're on the floor. And I say, John, that was just great today. Well, thanks. I I said, how much of it was true? (laughs) And he laughed. He, He laughed. So he had a he had a, a really good sense of humor, and I'm sure when he said these awful things about you, he he, <laughs> he was being ironic because obviously uh, you're you're incredibly uh, able and smart and uh, and truthful. And uh, there we go. We're gonna take a break for a moment. We'll be right back. The best way to learn a language: immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example... Let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. It's three o'clock somewhere. Time for a My Mochi ice cream snack. My Mochi ice cream is cool, creamy scoops of premium ice cream wrapped in sweet, pillowy dough. And get this. 
all of my mochi's fabulous flavors like strawberry, mango, double chocolate, and cookies and cream are only around 80 calories per piece. Talk about a guilt-free indulgent experience. Each box of My Mochi ice cream has six perfectly portioned gluten-free mochis that are great for grab-and-go. So feel good while curbing your afternoon cravings or the midnight munchies. Yeah, you know who you are with the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream. Find My Mochi ice cream at Target or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you. For, I I gotta go to your son. I I think I'm on page. I think I'm on. Here like, we go. Okay, uh, your son is he still a president? Of, no, he's no longer the president graduated. of Stanford College Republicans. No, he's not graduated. He's a senior. He handed off that mantle after about a year and a half to a successor. So he, as of this past spring. His junior year, he ceased to be president. Okay, I think the best way I can explain this <laughs> is that your son's candidate in 2016. No, wait, you got to go back to. Was Ted Cruz. No, wait, wait, wait. You got to go back to 2007. I wanted. Uh, he Ted was Cruz. Nothing can- trumps Ted Cruz. Well, Dennis Kucinich. I know. So obviously he's kind of goes one way and the other and is not oh. very well tethered <laughs> <laughs> to reality. <laughs> I think what happened is he gets in the Stanford, which is no, one of the most selective. We can't you know. blame Stanford for this. No, 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 no. I'm not blaming Stanford. This is what I'm saying. Stanford is, you know, there's Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Stanford, all four the most foremost selective uh, colleges in 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 the country. I just read a book by Paul Tuff, who writes about higher education and how a higher education system in this country promotes this uh, tremendous gap in wealth. And part of that is legacies. So I'm sure Jake, because you went to Stanford. I did. He's going like, I never could have gotten into Stanford if I hadn't been for this legacy thing, and I want to preserve that. That seems like <laughs> a Republican sure my thing. my sister and everybody else will never get in. No, no, that no. they'll they'll. Oh, he wants I to preserve see. it. No, 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 and that and that's what it is. Because let's face it, you don't have to be that bright to get into Stanford <laughs> as a legacy. You just don't. Uh, I'm not going to engage that one. Um, she, uh, CJ, you say a she lot wouldn't of even defend. No, your no, no. IQ. I was, I was, I was, you, I, you didn't let me finish. <laughs> I was, was going to say you can say a lot of things about my son and his politics. He is a conservative. Yes. And I love him to death. You he's a great kid. Love your son, no matter how, he's a great kid. But I will say well, this: yeah, he's a smart kid. He's you know he's got challenges with his political preferences. Okay, he's a really he, smart kid. His candidate was Ted Cruz. His candidate in, in sixteen. Well, it wasn't Donald Trump. I know, but it was Ted Cruz initially. Yeah, it was worse still. It was Rick Perry before that. No, that's not worse. <laughs> I can tell you some Ted Cruz stories. Well, maybe we should go there next. Um, uh, that'll curl your your yeah. hair. Yeah, the child is a conservative. Yeah, no, I, I joking kind but of. But he's about my baby, the, uh, so don't mess with him. The legacy. Or I'll thing. come at you. Oh, he's a bird watcher too, and yeah, he's like he's a, knows all the in, calls of every bird. He, well. He's in, working in North on, America. In North America, he's working on his global list. Okay. 
He's an odd duck. He's a, he's a, little, he's a little quirky. Good kid, though. Okay. I want uh, Obama. Can Obama. I talk about Obama? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Let's give him as mu- almost as much time as Jake. <laughs> Watching Trump, I can't help but see kind of just a difference. A little bit? Yeah, between the way Obama made us feel okay and good about our country and this guy uh who we don't need to talk about him you know obviously uh you love the guy and we're talking about obama now just to be clear yes okay yes absolutely <laughs> just want to be sometimes these things everyone. get edited you're, you're just love people <laughs> and so uh just listen we're talking about obama not trump unbelievably dignified all that i i think he you know made some mistakes one of the mistakes i will say i think and you don't discuss this in the book when you guys withdrew i say you guys (laughs) because they're part of that when you withdrew from iraq I think it was a mistake, and I know part of the issue was that you couldn't get some status of forces agreement, right? But I think it would have been smart to leave a, like a counter-terrorism or counter-insurgency force, and I think that might have been very, very helpful when ISIS created its caliphate and marched through Iraq. So my own view on that is as follows. Uh one, I know you remember this, but just to refresh our listeners, it was actually President Bush who had signed an agreement that committed to end the U.S. military presence by the end of 2011. That was part of the two. He did that with Maliki? He, he, yes, he signed it uh, before leaving office. And that was the commitment. We had made a commitment to do certain things in terms of uh, supporting the, the Iraqi state. But the other side of that coin was a commitment that the U.S. would withdraw all of its forces well, I, by I 2011. Re- I did not remember that, but uh, still. Real, no, but, but that's that's <laughs> important point, it because is. that's back in the day when the United States actually honored the commitments of prior presidents. One, I, I don't remember two, that. Well, go back and do your homework, bro. That's right, it. We, we've never. Secondly. Trump is operating so, exactly in the same tradition as every pre- previous yeah, president. Exactly. So, secondly. Obama then did try to negotiate an extension mm-hmm. with the Iraqis. Would have had to be a new agreement to leave a very small number of U.S. forces, a couple, 3,000, 5,000, but required that the Iraqis give the United States the same protections and privileges and immunities for our military personnel that we have everywhere around the world so that when they're stationed somewhere, you know, if they're accused of a crime, they they get tried, for example, by the U.S. military right. rather than by a local kangaroo court. Could not get those privileges and immunities, a, a status of forces agreement negotiated with the Iraqis because the Iraqis actually wanted us out. They weren't prepared to give what we needed. And so President Obama said, in the absence of that, I'm pulling out. Mm-hmm. Now, was that wise? Could there have been a way to keep them there anyway? It would have been risky legally and politically challenging in terms of Iraqi U.S. politics. Also politically challenging in terms of U.S. politics, because as you know, he ran on let's end the war in Iraq. But 
let's assume he could have done that. Let's say he could have well, figured out a way to leave. If you're going down from how many force, uh, uh, men were uh, at men the height uh, over there. a hundred, way over a hundred thousand. Yeah, if you go that down to four or five thousand, right. then what if you parked them in Kuwait? Well, in effect, we did. We had forces all over the region at the same time. So okay. that's, in effect, what we did. But we weren't in Baghdad. We weren't in bases but in Iraq. why couldn't and we have stopped ISIS from just rolling in? Well, so what happened after we left? And I'm not sure, to be honest, Al, that leaving four or 5,000 forces would have changed us. What Maliki did was completely politicized the Iraqi armed forces. We sure. had trained them, armed them, professionalized them he, he over many Shia. years. He was very shady, and he was a sectarian, Shia. Yes, yes. Shia. And uh, his whole thing was, you know, Shia and Iran over Sunni and Kurd. Mm-hmm. And so the armed forces atrophied, basically disintegrated to an extent that, and this is also a failing, that we did not, we the United States, we our intelligence community, we the policymakers, didn't understand the extent to which the army didn't exist anymore. We were still in there, with, you know, with equipment and all of that. We thought they were more or less what we left behind, and they weren't. So when ISIS rolled up and literally took Mosul mm-hmm. almost overnight, as I describe in the book, we were caught off guard, no question about it. And that was the point at which we, you know, worked to get Maliki out because we couldn't work with him. He was completely corrupt and dishonest. Mm-hmm. He'd lost and he had, to, he had to leave. He did eventually leave. And as soon as he left, the United States worked out an arrangement where we could support them with a small number of forces, air power, training, etc., to start the fight against ISIS. But we were on the back foot. Okay, I, I really wanted to talk, uh, 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 say some good things about Obama, which, who I think everybody now is going like, oh, Jesus. Well, you knew him, Al, so what, what, do you, what did you admire about him? What do you admire? Well, not you know, he's not I gone. Mean, <laughs> uh, dignified. Probably wouldn't tweet himself. <laughs> he's uh, not a stable w- w- genius. With a uh, rocky <laughs> body on You think? I don't think, and also, actually. He didn't need to. He actually he, has. Yeah, yeah he, he, he worked out. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, did his homework. Just rose to the occasion when terrible things happened and gave uh, very uh, moving remarks at, <laughs> throughout. And I mean, it's unfair to compare him to Trump because anyone looks good compared to Trump. But we miss him being president. So, so we take Air Force One uh, to Minnesota, and and Amy and I are on the plane. And Klobuchar. Amy Klobuchar. I am so sorry. God, thank God you're here. <laughs> <laughs> senator so, Amy Klobuchar. My, the senior senator, right. Amy Klobuchar, is on the plane. And we get off, and then we ride in the president's car, okay? So riding in the car, and it's me, Amy Klobuchar, uh, President Barack Obama, <laughs> and Governor Mark Dayton uh-huh. of Minnesota. Uh-huh. And then there's a bit of a lull, and then I had this just idea of a question to ask him i had thought of and i did it and i was stupidly and i just said have your dreams changed since you became president <laughs> like his dreams at night not his yeah, aspirations yeah 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 <laughs> and he just said i sleep great at night i, I sleep really well now that was a signal to not 
follow up. <laughs> and I said, well, no, no, no. I meant, meant your dreams. Your dreams. And then he's, and then he's like, my fucking God, doesn't this guy? <laughs> and he just does, I, uh, yes, I had a dream that I was in public and no one knew who I was and left. Everyone. Oh, okay. And then, then I go like, that's a that's not a nightmare. That's the opposite of a nightmare for well, him. I wasn't that's asking him if he had nightmares. Best I didn't dream ask could think him of. that. Mm-hmm. I didn't ask him that. I just if his dreams had changed. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't your dreams change if you became president? But would you tell anybody about them? As <laughs> <laughs> a classified, yeah, yeah. So that was that so that was, was a good conversation started. That was as dumb as I got, I think, as a senator. <laughs> that was pretty stupid. I remember going once, I was running for re-election. Workforce stuff was a big thing I did. So they had promised that I'd do a workforce event when Obama was in, when the president was in Minnesota. And so because of time constraints, they had to find something a little different from the kind of thing I wanted. So what we went to was a program where they take single mothers who don't have job skills and train them to have job skills. Mm -hmm. So Obama comes there, and me and Obama and the press are there. Now, these women are all single mothers. And he is the son of a single, of single mom, mother. Right. So it's just his very presence is saying, so far you're doing everything right, in a way. I mean, in other words, they went like, my God, he's the son of a single mom. And, man, they didn't pay any attention to me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, wow, it like couldn't have been... Couldn't have been like, I was ignoring me. I mean, I was just like, <laughs> this is so cool. Okay, that's that's I that story. I was ignoring me. That's a good one. Yeah. I see, I'm funny. And then if you were writing a book about how funny I was, I might do that. You, you might uh, do that. <laughs> okay, uh, we, we, have to, we have to break for a commercial. And uh, here it is. Say goodbye to performance-robbing engine deposits with Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline. Hate to break it to you, but lower-grade fuel can leave deposits in your engine that build up over time and leave your engine's performance severely lacking. Thankfully, Shell V-Power Nitro Plus removes up to 100% of performance-robbing deposits with continuous use in gasoline direct injection engine fuel injectors. Download the Shell app today to find your nearest Shell station and rejuvenate your engine with Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline. Fuel up at Shell. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I got, like, goddamn a shitload of stuff to ask you. Oh, your parents. Let's talk about your parents. So my mom's family, uh, my grandparents came to Portland, Maine in 1912 from Jamaica. They were not many folks who 
look like me in Portland at the time. Yeah, they were yeah. born in Jamaica. <laughs> <laughs> my grandfather was a janitor, worked uh, until he was 80 as a janitor. My grandmother was a maid, and they had no education. But like so many immigrants, they came to this country to try to uh, make a better life. And um, they had five kids, and they my grandparents saved and scraped and managed to send all five of them to college. And my mom went to Radcliffe. My mom went to Radcliffe. My four uncles went to Bowdoin College in Maine. I think my grandfather was the first man ever had to have four sons attend Bowdoin. Wow. And two of them became doctors. One became an optometrist. The fourth became a university president. And they didn't know what to do with my mom as the youngest and the only girl who graduated as valedictorian from Portland High School in uh, 1950. She couldn't go to Bowdoin, so they had to scramble right. to find some other alternative that would take girls and uh they came across Radcliffe and my mom they came across Radcliffe <laughs> <laughs> my oh, mom honey, you can't go to Bowdoin no you can't it was a real trauma so we're thinking of Radcliffe they had never heard of Radcliffe it was only because my uncle the one who became a university president was in the process uh, or maybe already had gotten his PhD in English from Harvard. So he'd heard of Radcliffe. Jesus. He suggested okay. it to his family. Okay. Anyway, so the interesting story is that my grandfather, when my mom was in her junior year in high school, he had a catastrophic accident at the music store where he was a janitor. He fell down an elevator shaft and he broke his back and he broke his legs and he was laid up in the hospital for many, many months. And what little savings they had accumulated to be able to send their final child to college, because uh, scholarships were few in those days, was gone. And so my mom was, as valedictorian of her class, entitled to Radcliffe's State of Maine scholarship for the top kids who got into Radcliffe. And she was denied the scholarship because she was black. Of course. And the woman who chaired the scholarship committee, who was apparently the wife of some Bowdoin professor, ironically, mm -hmm. said that my mom couldn't have the scholarship because the whole point was to have a recipient who moved in the proper circles. That mm -hmm. was the terminology when they and got out of married to Harvard. Well, uh, preferably, mm -hmm. but could come back and raise money for Radcliffe by moving in the proper oh, circles. And since my mother was black, by definition, in her view, she couldn't move in the proper circles. So she was denied the scholarship. And her principal at Portland High School and her debate coach, uh, my mom was a champion debater, uh, went to Radcliffe. She, she got a scholarship from Radcliffe that turned out to be bigger than what she yeah. would have gotten and from another uh, small nonprofit. But anyway, with the benefit of that and understanding just how powerfully um, upwardly mobile a, a good higher education can be. She devoted her life to trying to establish and sustain access to higher education for low-income people. And she was actually known as the mother of the Pell Grant program. Really? She worked very, very closely with Claiborne Pell and long after he was gone to, to keep that program alive. So, Al, do you know how many Americans have benefited from the Pell Grant program? Uh, I'd say three or 4,000. No. Try again. Um... I mean, in the history million? of the program. 120 million. No. 80 million. Okay. 80 million Americans. Well, have... somewhere in between those two right. numbers. Right. That's a lot of people. 
Uh, and, that's ama- yeah, of course. And uh, now now they want to kill it. They're Republicans. They're insane. They're insane. So if you're not for pulling people, people pulling themselves up by the bootstraps, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is what they claim to be for. They don't want anybody to have boots to be able to do that. But that's right. Why deny hardworking, good people the opportunity to go to college? Because of people like your son. No, but why? What's the lot? First <laughs> Sorry, of all, my son. Me laugh. My son. <laughs> Just insulting my, son, my by the way, children. <laughs> my son, by the way, is a believer in education and opportunity, and in some ways, he differs from his party orthodoxy. But what I'm really trying to understand is, well, what's the philosophical underpinning yeah. of wanting to see people fail? They uh, just have this unbelievably stubborn philosophy that the government doesn't help people, doesn't really do anything, doesn't create jobs. I remember the tax cut they're doing, and I'm on the floor with um, a Republican member, and I said, uh, this is going to just explode the deficit. And, you know, if you want to keep deficits down, you just got to elect a Democratic president, right? I mean, that's a, his, that's exactly right. But that's a yeah. And he goes, no, it's uh, there'll be, you know, dynamic scoring. You know, the tax cuts will will get more revenue because we'll get so much prosperity. <laughs> you know, I go, no, you're not. You know that. Come on. Come on. And you've seen we've exploded the deficit. And then when they explode the deficit. And it hasn't helped the economy. It had a little bit of a bump and now it's like leveled off. And it certainly hasn't helped uh, people, you know, at the bottom end and people in the uh, working class. You know, maybe some have a little bit. But, no, they're just, uh, you know, I go like, the government creates jobs. He says, the government doesn't create jobs. I said, have you heard of the Erie Canal? (laughs) Have you heard of the interstate highway system? Erie Canal was the state government. It was New York. Have you heard of the internet? Have you? Well, yes, but uh, but you also it, it also is negatives too because of all the people in the government. <laughs> oh I mean, this is like moronic. But, They're moronic. But, we, but, but but no problem with extra farm subsidies because of you know stupid tariffs. Yeah, well, that was stupid tariffs. Uh, that was that was stupid. Um, the way he went about that, uh, they—it's uh, very selective logic, as you know. It does anyway. We could spend all day on this, but yeah, and we we but do the that notion every of once denying people the opportunity to be educated as a matter of principle and philosophy. Just, well, then just, it's the budget. So then right. it's like we can't increase <laughs> the we can't let people pay off their loans at a, at at market rate. <laughs> We have to make them pay it off at what they got it at. They're awful. I mean, I will say that. They're just... And, and it's gotten worse and worse and worse. And McConnell, I blame McConnell uh, in a lot of ways. But uh, we, we're, I, we should wrap up because I know you have to leave. Um, but uh, this has been a pleasure. <laughs> is there something I left on the table that you would like to... We, we didn't talk dad. about my dad. We didn't talk about my dad. Your dad. I Yeah, I had something from your dad. My dad was the man. He really was. Emmett. Emmett Rice. Emmett. And uh, here's something. Emmett's one philosophy about... He was a Tuskegee Airman. Yes. He was in... 
He was uh, a he was a PhD in economics and a, a governor of the Federal Reserve System ultimately. But he was born in the sort of heart of Jim Crow in 1920. Uh, grandparents in were slaves. His grandparents were slaves. Yeah. His yeah. This is his uh, key lesson on race that he he gave you. I concluded that I am only one person. I am only human, and I cannot carry the burden of the world around on my shoulder and at the same time function. So I was going to be myself, and I was not going to be constantly on my P's and Q's because people expected me to. If my being black caused a problem, it was not going to be to me. It was going to be to other people. Deep. I mean, basically what he was, he finally learned as he, you know, got out of the the segregated military in World War II, where he was supposedly there to fight for freedom of everybody but his own people. And after he was denied job after job, once he had a Ph.D. in economics from Berkeley uh, because of race, he basically figured out that despite all of these obstacles... He did get a choice as to how he thought about himself. And he could either allow the bigotry of various people he encountered to become his own definition of himself, or he could let that bigotry be their problem because he figured out that bigotry comes in large measure from the bigot's own insecurity. And why should he allow their insecurity to become his insecurity? And he just figured out a, a, a form of psychological jujitsu to put that back on other people and not let it infect or infuse his own sense of self and self-worth. And that's what he taught me and my brother from a very early age. Believe in yourself. Know your own worth. Don't take crap off of people. Mm-hmm. Don't let other people define you for you. Uh, and don't let anybody tell you you can't. Hugely powerful lessons. And it didn't mean that my brother and I didn't encounter, you know, obviously not the same degree of, of, of obstacles and prejudice as our parents. We did uh, encounter our share in our time, but we were, I think, much better equipped to deal with it because of how they raised us. Yeah, that's pretty beautiful. You're very, very lucky with your parents, Hugely even though lucky. they had uh, they had their problems and your household at times was uh, a little tough on on you and your brother, uh, but uh, unbelievable legacy that they left you and amazing. Uh, I could do Larry King. And the book is Tough Love, my story of the things worth fighting for. Uh, what do we call you? So, uh, ambassador? Ambassador Susan, <laughs> doctor. Just call me Susan. That's what I like best. Susan Rice. <laughs> well, thank you, Susan. Uh, next week's uh, Stephen Eady, Steve Lawrence, and Edie Gourmet will be here. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, that was fun. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, great. Thank that you. That was a lot of fun. And you're gonna. my next book will be better because I'll put the jokes in. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing. We'll talk again next week.
Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember Remix and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam packed, music filled weekly party where hip hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus.